So now, Father, as we open your word, I would pray for those in this room who do belong to you, that their hearts would be attuned to the Holy Spirit who wants to speak your words to us today. For those who don't know you who are here, that you would use those words to penetrate way beyond our ability to speak those words. May the power of what you have said through other people of other generations come with great power to us today. That their experiences and their understanding and indeed their words that you have given to them come down with the same kind of call to our lives and the same kind of definition of who you are in this world and the same kind of reminder of your sovereignty and of your love. So Father, we pray for these moments. May I be faithful to what you have said and may we leave this place rejoicing that we have once again as a body of believers Touch the very essence of eternity in the inspired and God-breathed word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 11, if you have your Bibles, let's just take them out and read Psalm 11. And then allow me to make some comments. The psalm written by David at some point under pressure from pursuit by Saul which one of those occasions, I don't know that we can actually say, but it doesn't matter too much. He was being pursued by, by Saul to be killed. And uh, hiding out somewhere, he pins and or at some other point, remembering the pressure of this in the moment, pins some words that I think are intriguing. So he says in chapter 11, or in Psalm 11, Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot into the dark at the upright of heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And indeed, the Lord even tests the righteous. But it is standard to God. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so, let him rain down coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall or should be, as the psalmist would say, the portion of their cup. And we need not defend that because the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and he loves the upright because they're the only ones that will see God. A little bit of paraphrase there, but that's where we're headed. You look at these short little clips of thoughts that come from psalmists, and you say, well, where do you dive in? We could make it just a devotional focus and say a few things and say, "Mm, we're blessed. 
We could say, well, let's take a look at David and his confidence in his rightness. That as he thinks about Saul mobilizing a whole army of people to kill him. And he says, you know, God, this is not right. Saul, what are you doing? Even Saul's own son defends the rightness of David. He'd been loyal to him. He'd not tried to be tra- a traitor to him, even knowing that God had anointed him at some point to take the throne. And Jonathan himself, affirming that, still kept that pure in his heart. The rightness. We could focus on rightness and how do you handle rightness? What do you do when you're persecuted because of rightness? We could focus on David and his confidence in God. That in spite of all of the realities, that even in the night... These people had prepared arrows and they were going to shoot, even in the night. They didn't know exactly who was in the night. They didn't know exactly where David was. They didn't know exactly where they were aiming to, but let's fling a bunch of arrows and see if we can find him. Even in the night, they're flinging their arrows at me. But God is still in charge. And that's, in fact, indeed where he starts the passage that uh, in the Lord, I take refuge. Come back around to that one. So we could focus on David and his confidence in God. Or we could focus on Saul and his lawlessness. Yes, he's king. And yes, there's a lot of things that kings can do that we can't do, that democratic governments can't do, that even a lot of people with power under people with power can't do, but there's a lot a king can do. But a king is not given moral right to murder. And that's what Saul was attempting to do, to murder David. To make sure the promises that he even understood would not come to be. Protect his own power and his family and its lineage. I'll kill him. Now, if he had gone to court, as such as it might have been, and got an accusation affirmed about David with honest people, then maybe we would say, okay, he was just. But at this point, it's total lawlessness. We could focus on that. Lawlessness. Or we could focus on God and the strong assertions, because David makes some real strong, assumptive assertions about God here. We could focus on that. But I think there is one verse in here that is extremely intriguing. And I want to focus on that one. And that is the, I think, the third verse. And and David says this, introducing his confidence in God, coming out of that explaining why he is so confident in God and how God acts in the world. He says these words, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If you live in a world, and we just heard that many of our Indian brethren live in a world where it's just not fair, where what the constitution of that nation says is disregarded by those who hold political power in its application, 
There is total freedom in the Constitution of India, but it's not protected. It's not protected for Christians in many states because other states have put into place anti-conversion laws. Nope, can't do it. When it's pointed out that, no, 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 our national constitution doesn't allow that, then eventually they get into national power and hope in December to pass a national anti-conversion law. If we can't shut you up in practical application, let's shut you up on the national level. It is against the law in India to hold slaves, but tens and tens and tens of thousands of poor, illiterate Indians live in slavery to plantation owners in that nation. And the kind of abject poverty you can't even imagine. Go anywhere you want, watch any movie. You will not be able to imagine the poverty that these people live in. They live like animals. And the plantation owners don't care. Now, it's against the law in that nation. It's against the law in America to traffic women. But some of the most recent studies show that we are one of the most trafficked countries in the whole world. We are a sex problem for the whole world is what the study has revealed. Our sexual deviation releases the evil of sexual promiscuity in all of its phases and faces all over the world. What do you do? What do you do when you live in a world where uh, the government has decided that what was legal is no longer legal and you now have to be this way? And you and I know that, hmm, doesn't seem to make any ethical sense, really. What do you do in a, in a world where a government used to believe in this morality and now believes in something that is totally opposite from that morality. You see, the, the Christians of the first century would have understood that because Rome took the idea of morality and turned it upside down. And Christians, therefore, because they lived biblical morality, were the enemy and declared immoral. It's immoral in America to think about the baby, even as you think about the woman. Nope, can't do that. You can't think about the life that's beating inside of a woman because the woman's rights trumps the baby's rights. You know, I think about that and I can get pretty upset. You see, Hitler would have understood that. Mussolini would have understood that debauched people down through the history of the world would have understand that life is to be used. And when it gets in the way, you destroy it. So it's not just that those of us who believe that, no, there, there is something in the discussion of both of these things that needs to be had, and we should have this national discussion, and we should protect diversity of thought. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You can't think that way. You're illegal. No, 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 no. 
you're immoral because you think that way. Flipped upside down. And we can just start doing this again and again and again. What do you do when you have politicians running your national government who call each other names, who take no time to actually enact the laws of the nation, who will make assertions against each other that, you know, any reasonable person might say, whoa, 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 let's stop, take a deep breath, and let's see what's the truth. No, no, we don't want the truth. You do what? You don't think I have a right to help my two-year-old define his gender? What kind of animal are you? You're a monster. Huh? What do the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Good question. It's an easy question all over the world. Most Christians in the world have no access to power. They come from poor classes. In fact, as I was talking to Lou yesterday, most of the Christians in some of the continents are 80% women. 80% of Latin America, women. 80% of of India, women. 80% of Ethiopia, women. Why? I, I don't like to say it this way, but I'm sure I have to. Because all over the world, the women are nothing more than an animal to be bargained for that gets me access to reproduction so that I'll have a male who will protect my my line and give me some assets. They have no access to anything. So when somebody comes along and says, you know, there's hope, is not the hope of their context because all of the foundations are destroyed. It's not the hope of their context. It's the hope of something else that enters into their heart. What do the righteous do when even inside of the church, the foundations are destroyed? When all over, and I would like not to say this, and I hope I'm wrong. I am hope when I get to eternity, God says, Dwight, you shouldn't have said that. It wasn't true. I know your heart, and I know you wanted to say the good thing, but you know, it wasn't true. I hope that's what God says. I don't think he's going to. When all over America, there are, sitting, there are people sitting in places like this, listening to men who have no regard for this book and are telling them things about the book that are not true. They're saying things about God that are so incomplete that it's not even the same God anymore. What do you do when the foundations are destroyed? When, as I think we find in America, the concept of God has become so distorted that, you know, well, you know, God. Yeah, we all have access. How? Well, we get it through Hinduism. We get it through Buddhism. We get it through Islam. We get it through Christianity. We get it through paganness because the love of God transcends all of it. And he has ultimately no definitive requirements and we're all going to get there. But even inside the evangelical church, one commentator has said, we have come to the point where God has now come to rest so lightly and inconsequently upon the church that what we know to be true, we don't do. Yeah, we believe it. Yeah, well, prove it. 
What do we do when uh, the pervading impact of sin continues? When I, we, deal with people who knowingly confess Christians, contradict Scripture by life, and then they think, well, yeah, I did it, I'm sorry. It's all over. I'm sorry. It's amazing to me that I'm sorry little glib is becoming so pervasive in our society. I'm sorry. Yeah? I really didn't mean to kill you. I didn't mean to get irate and take off my helmet and bash you over the head. I didn't mean to run my car into you. We can go from small to big. I'm sorry sort of covers everything now. There really is no sin. There's either the fact of discovery or the fact that you owe me to let me be me, so leave me alone, I'm sorry. There's no sense of sin. And we're going to come down here a little bit further and it's going to be a little bit difficult. God hates evil people. Whoa, don't tell me that. (laughs) God hates evil. Now, you got to understand why God hates evil. God hates evil because it destroys the wonderful design that he created when he made man and woman unique to everything else in his universe. It robs us of the righteousness and the health that God intended. And it can make hell out of life. God gets so upset of it, he says, look, divorce, I hate it. Well, is God saying he hates a man or a woman because they want, no, God's saying you rip the guts out of the beautiful design of two becoming one. And now you're living incomplete and I never designed it that way. Sin. Now, if we're a believer, we don't have to, to feel constantly guilty about that. But it's definitive enough that God says, even as a believer, when you find it in your life again, hey, you know what? Take it back to the cross. It's been dealt with. You're forgiven. But affirm that forgiveness by not simply confessing, but you know, give me a repentance some here. Show me that your heart is willing to turn the other direction. What do you do when the foundations are destroyed when the full extent of salvation from sin to God for transformation and healing is distorted. Well, you know, it's all about me feeling good about myself and God made me feel good about myself now. God says, I accept you. Well, now I can accept me too. That is such a a, a cutting off of the design of what God, because God meant for salvation towards restoration so that there might be transformation and ultimately healing. I won't go too far with it, but the most recent book I'm about to come out with on the flesh is that we've allowed, even as Christians, the flesh to make hell out of our lives. All of these gateways that God intended for righteousness get plugged up, are plugged up because we were born in Adam. They've been potentially cleaned in Jesus Christ, but we still sit there. How many times do I meet with leaders and say, well, I, I'm doing this. Well, well then why, why are you doing this? Well, because of this. And I say, well, is that really why you're doing that? 
And if I'd go back five steps, if they would willfully go back five steps, they'd find a root to that, that thing that's making their Christianity difficult and less than joyful that God says, I want to expose and heal. I'm in the business of healing you. Not just the external things, more importantly, the internal things. I want to unplug all of that trash in the gateways so you can more clearly hear the Spirit of God and I can continue to bring the healing of the resurrection of my Son, Jesus Christ. And yet we get churches, hey, yeah, no, just come, just give your money, be happy, get into leadership, you know, go home, feel good about yourself. Yes, God wants you to feel good about yourself in Jesus, but without Jesus, he don't want you to feel too good about yourself. He wants to make a new person out of you. <laughs> He's not going to dress up the whole trash. He wants to release you from the things that bind you. When the, when the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? And then finally, if the, the whole concept of who God is or more importantly, the reliability of Scripture. When they all get messed up, what do you do? There's more we could say. What do you do? Now, David is not saying you don't take action, but he's not addressing that, <laughs> okay? He's not saying that when we confront abortion, we don't disagree with it. I'm not saying that. When we confront things that are morally wrong and been declared morally right, that we don't vote against them. He's not saying that we don't even protest. He's not saying that. He's not saying that there is not action that we take. But he wants to make clear the ultimate answer is only in the hands of the sovereign one. You can do all the protests you want, but you might not win the game. You can do all the political activism you can, but you might not win the game. We can do everything we ought to do as humans in pushing back on the insanity of our day, but nothing may change. A wife with a husband who's rebelled against God and wandered on, we can do everything we can to heal it to bring understanding, to see it brought back together, but you might not win the game. It's still in the heart of people. Evil is in the heart of everybody who's ever been born on this earth. You might not win the game. David understood that a little bit clearer because he had no power to do anything, really. And he knew that he shouldn't, so he didn't take action against, it, against Saul. If I were emperor of the world, I'd do something about India. <laughs> I'm not. What are the Indians going to do? Well, they should vote. They should protest. They should speak out. But many are going to die. Why? The foundations have been destroyed. And the and the righteous have no human options. They shall try to take them. And so here he comes back and he says, well, your only real option, let me tell you what it is, is you got to go back to God. 
and you rest in him. We deal a lot with people with cancer and we would never want to say to them, don't, don't fight, don't go to the doctor, don't take the drugs. We're not saying that. But ultimately, every breath is in the hand of the sovereign one. So there's always this tension. We pray for healing, but we embrace sovereignty. Tough one. Pray for healing, but embrace sovereignty. And that's exactly where David is. And so he says, number one, chapter one, you flee to the Lord. He started it there. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For behold, don't you understand, I can flee to the mountain, but even as I flee to the mountain, the wicked have fitted their arrows and they're shooting them into the night. They don't care if most of them miss if one of them hits. You flee to the Lord. The second thing he says is in verse 4. He says, you count on God's sovereignty. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes are on eyelids test. He's not unseen. He knows what's going on. There is nothing that happens on this planet, nothing that happens on this planet that does not exist within the sovereign hands of God or there is no God. Nothing happens. Even evil renders accountability to the sovereignty of God. And David says, just think about that. He is in his holy places. His eyes are not closed. His eyelids are open. He sees. The third thing that David says is that the evil will suffer. Don't ever forget that. Verse 6 Let him rain down coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and and scorching wind, uh, because the Lord hates the wicked. The Lord hates the wicked. Yes, look, God has wickedness that he hates and will judge. He hates what it's done to everything that he's created. And then finally, don't forget verse 7. Above all things, the Lord is righteous. Above all things, the Lord is righteous. And he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And I would translate that to say, the upright are the only who will see his face. Now, I'm not saying we don't take human action. But even while you're taking human action in your heart is the bending of the spirit to divine sovereignty. Always. Let me give you a couple things, I think, which are New Testament thoughts in application of this Old Testament psalm. That first, God's righteousness comes first. Never alone, but always first. Let's don't try to make God love without first realizing He is righteous. He's sovereign. If not, you pollute His, his love and it gets consumed by our human definitions of love. He becomes indulgent, not God. Yes, he's Abba, but I cringe to call him Daddy. That whole metaphor is a metaphor that I think rips from God 
the greater idea of what a responsible father really is. And so we start the very idea of God with righteousness. Even in this church, as we we talk about relationship to you as people and the things that God wants to do, we come back to this tension. The message is strident, even while we attempt to make the application compassionate. Now, sometimes we get out of whack and you wonder, well, why did the elders decide that? Because ultimately, the righteousness of God proceeds in all these decisions. I have a number of incidences that I'm dealing with globally that just don't make any sense to me. I have one that just absolutely is so out of, out of world in my mind that I can't even put my head around it. And I've said to the son, who is at odds with the father, both of whom are in church leadership, and I would say to the father if he would like to talk to me, I don't get this. Is not the glory of God in all this more important than you? Is not the glory of God seen in the, in the father-son relationship indeed more important than this church that you, father, are trying to preserve? Really? Do you want to die estranged from your son? When both of you are confessing Christians, living, living godly lives, trying, is that really what you're going to do? Put the glory of a place that has no eternal value to it ultimately, except as it's filled with people who are belonging to Jesus. You're going to put that above. And so now the whole area knows this difficulty is going on and the glory of God is diminished. I'm sorry. Doesn't make any sense to me. Righteousness comes first with God. Always. But then there comes the oxymoron, the difficulty, the thing hard to understand is God's love. God's love is a mystery. Righteousness is the standard. Love is the mystery. And so judgment and mercy have been twice made available to those who have been chosen, to you. Twice made available. First, in the beginning, in your father and mother, Adam and Eve. And second, in the regeneration that the second, last Adam brought to you in his son Jesus, what God brings in his son Jesus Christ. We have been judged children of God in that, in that last Adam, Jesus Christ. You see, first comes holy and righteousness and just, because that's who he is. Then he surprises us with his love. The great oxymoron of Scripture is not God's right. Listen to me. The great enigma, the great difficulty of Scripture is not God's right, indeed his, his obligation to judge, but his love appearing. Choosing to take the full extent of his own wrath upon himself and his son. That's the great mystery of Scripture. Not that God would judge. You see, some people sort of say, well, the Old Testament, let's only ever look at it. We don't understand that God. No, no, no. That's, that's the true God that needs to be understood. The, the mystery is, the mystery is that there's even a Genesis 3. 
That's the mystery. Judgment is who he is and should be expected. The fact that anybody gets redemption and ends up in eternity with him is a miracle. Nobody deserves it. So God shocks you, not with his judgment, if you understand who he is. He shocks you with his love. But then he double shocks you by taking all of the judgment that you rightfully deserve on himself in his son. Habakkuk said it this way, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no more herds in the stalls. When all of the systems have failed, what are the righteous going to do? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice, I will joy in the Lord of my salvation. I go back to sovereignty. Yeah? I'm going to die. When? I don't know. Does it matter? I don't live for life, I live for eternity. This place is so mucked up, it's not the place I want for eternity. The place God has for eternity is more like the one of Genesis 1 and 2. With no mucking. Pure, holy, righteous, good, healthy, complete. In this one, I have to learn. Yeah, got to learn it. I'm not telling you just because we said it, now you're going to go do it. You have to nurture in your own mind this. He never makes a mistake. He's always out in front of me. I can trust his sovereignty. Lord, bend my knee to your sovereignty. Because I know in your, so in your sovereignty, there is inside of it wrapped up your love. And the two come to me on a daily basis. What do the righteous do when all of the foundations are destroyed? They go back to one who controls it all and reassert his authority. Father, thank you for this time together. Pray for the word that you would use it to your power, to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.